God, we are uh, so excited to be here as a church family, to gather, to sing your praises, to sit under the authority of the word. God, we love your word because it points us to Jesus, because in your word, it, it does things within us that nothing else can. It changes us, it makes us uncomfortable, it transforms us, it feeds us. So God, we pray that your word would truly do the work today, that you would show us the greatness of Jesus. Show us uh, what better ways we can uh, draw near to Jesus and love him more. And so we pray that you would work mightily in the next couple of moments. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's the most bizarre thing that you've ever witnessed while attending a wedding? What's the craziest thing that you've experienced while attending a wedding? No doubt, uh, most of us can think of a time or two when something happened at a wedding that, uh, that wasn't planned, wasn't uh, organized. And it's funny because weddings are typically pretty formal. They're organized. They're, uh, they're sacred. Uh, we have this sense uh, attending weddings that something really important is happening between, um, between a man and a woman, between uh, the Lord And yet, we can all think of a time or two attending a wedding in which something kind of bizarre happened. As much planning goes into a wedding, as much organization that happens, uh, weddings usually don't go 100% as planned. That's typically the first uh, bit of advice that I give to brides during premarital counseling as we're preparing for the day. I always tell her, look, I know you've been dreaming of this day, you've been planning of this day since you were a little girl, but it's not going to go 100% as you have in your mind, and just start to adjust your expectations uh, accordingly. That a wedding day, as exciting as they are, typically they are a nervous event that's just brimming with potential confusion. Well, those same emotions uh, clearly apply to this wedding that happened some 2,000 years ago in Cana of Galilee. That as we move through this passage, uh, I'm going to be unpacking uh, this scene, especially obviously the wedding and, and the wine and the significance of that. Uh, but just one caution before we dive in, try to avoid, when you think about a wedding, try to avoid thinking about that wedding in terms of what it means today. That a wedding today is very different than what an Eastern Jewish wedding was like uh, some 2,000 years ago. In fact, that's probably a really good reminder. As you're studying Scripture, as you're looking at the Bible trying to interpret it, um, try to avoid a very dangerous principle of reading into the text uh, based on your own experience and based on your own um, culture. One of the first things to do when you're studying the Bible is to read it and study it and first understand what did the author mean based on the intended audience in the time period and the culture in which he wrote it in, and then kind of cross over the cultural bridge into the 21st century and see how it applies to us um, today. And of course, that's important in any passage, but especially this one, where Jesus performs his first recorded miraculous sign at an Eastern Jewish wedding some 2,000 years ago. And so I'm going to walk through this passage. I'm going to point out also four um, important aspects of Jesus' first um, miracle, kind of why is this so significant um, at a wedding using uh, wine, Um, but I'm going to largely just kind of unpack this verse uh, by verse. Okay? You ready to talk about wine this morning and a wedding? Yeah? Okay, here we go. So, um, the first thing I just want to point out here is um, many translations leave out one of the first words that shows up in chapter 2 in the original Greek language. 
There's a word that's, um, that's in Greek, it's chi, which means and. And that word is used to connect the previous passage with our passage here this morning. That we should almost interpret that word as saying, ignore the chapter division, and instead, you're about to see what Jesus meant when he, say, when he said that you will see greater things than these. If you remember last week, we looked at Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel, and towards the end there, he told Nathaniel, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're going to see greater things than what Jacob saw in Genesis 28. And so Jesus wastes no time in, in coming through with that promise. He does so by performing this first miraculous sign. Now, the first thing I want to point out of why this uh, miracle is so significant is because by it, Jesus is inaugurating a new era, a new era. Looking at the uh, first two verses in particular, uh, we learn uh, a little bit more about the scene here. We have Jesus and Mary, uh, his mother, and the first five disciples. They are attending this wedding in Galilee. And if you remember, they're already there because of the conversation he had with Nathaniel. But John includes a very important detail that this wedding occurred on the third day. Now, the reason why that's significant is because John never talks about time in the gospel. He's never specific about days and time. In fact, that's going to be a challenge for us as we move through the gospel. We're going to struggle kind of where are we and, and you know, where is this taking place? And he really only talks about time in two main places throughout this gospel. The first was the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, and then the second place actually happens here in the first two chapters of John's gospel. Now, when John counts days, he does so for a specific purpose. This is not just a random bit of detail. And in fact, in this case, when John says that this wedding happened on the third day, this is actually part of a greater sequence that's happened in chapters 1 and 2. In fact, after counting and tallying all these days in chapters 1 and 2, you'll find that this wedding actually takes place on the seventh day. This is the first week of Jesus' public ministry. In the first six days, Jesus was working. He was calling his first disciples. But John highlights the fact that on the seventh day, Jesus rests by attending this wedding. John seems to be paralleling these seven days of Jesus' early ministry to the creation week of Genesis 1. And he's doing that because he's, he's trying to tell us something about the significance of Jesus' ministry here as it gets started. Now, what is John trying to tell us? Well, in order for us to understand the significance of that, we need to understand I think, the symbolic uh, importance of wine and a wedding feast from an Old Testament and Jewish perspective. That when you look at the Old Testament and the passages that talk about wine and talk about a wedding feast, such as Joel 3, Isaiah 55, or even Amos 9, whenever those two things are brought together, it is usually trying to represent a new era or a new age of blessing and favor from God. It's kind of ushering in this this new way of relating with God and a new way of enjoying God between the people of God and God himself. Let me point out just one of those passages, Amos chapter 9. This is after the people of God were in exile. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So again, using wine here to kind of symbolically reference this ushering in of this new age of blessing as God promises to take his own people out of exile and eventually even rebuild uh, the temple. Okay, so take the illusion that John gives us here of the creation account and in combination with the significance of what wine represented And what John is trying to tell us here is that Jesus' earthly ministry here is ushering in a new way of enjoying and relating with God. That in a similar way that the creation account, um, there was new life out of nothing. Jesus now is bringing spiritual life out of nothing. That he is inaugurating and ushering in something completely new and making this proclamation that the old is passing away and that this new relationship with God can be established through his ministry and through what he accomplished. Now he does this by attending a wedding. It's Eastern Jewish wedding. Now what, uh, what's taking place here at this wedding? Let me just kind of explain uh, what a wedding during this time period would look like. Okay, it's very different than, than how we uh, have our weddings today. Usually a wedding would take place on a Wednesday. Uh, if the bride was a virgin, uh, if, if she was a widow, it would happen on a Thursday. And the groom would actually take his friends, and during the nighttime, they would actually make this procession to uh, the bride's home. During this procession, there were, there were candles and, and torches. It was this beautiful scene of, of the groom going and, and picking up his bride. And during this procession, there were all kinds of these, speech, these speeches that were being made about the groom. And so he would pick up the bride, and then he would take the bride back to the groom's house because that's where the ceremony took place. That's where the feast occurred. In fact, the, the groom actually paid for everything which for me, I've got two girls. I'm like, man, that would be really appealing uh, during our, our day and age. But he, so he would take the, the bride back to his house. And again, just this beautiful candlelight, all these speeches were being made just about the bride and the groom. It's a very special and sacred um, kind of procession all the way to the ceremony. So they'd have the ceremony. And instead of them going away on a honeymoon, what would happen is that they would basically have an open house for a week, okay? Now, that is something I wouldn't look forward to uh, for a wedding these days, but they would have an open house for people to just to come in and enjoy, and there would be this massive feast, tons of food, and the central item at this feast was the wine. That the wine for the Jewish people was very symbolic for joy, for celebration, and for goodness, and these feasts would last up uh, until close to a week. Another significant um, fact about these weddings is that uh, the bride and the groom would uh, very much act like king and queen. They would wear crowns and uh, bridal robes, and basically whatever they said went. This was a very special occasion. This was a once-in-a-lifetime type of experience, and they probably would not have something like this for the rest of their lives. And so with that in mind, 
I don't think we can overemphasize the distress in Mary's words in verse 3 when she says to Jesus, the wine has run out. Mary, the mother of Jesus, at this wedding appears to have a very important role uh, during this wedding feast. Uh, She appears to be more than just a guest. Uh, She perhaps is in charge of the wine and the food. Most believe that she's uh, related uh, to the, the couple that's getting married here. Some actually believe that, uh, that Jesus is, one of Jesus' siblings was getting married here at this wedding, but she's the first to notice that the wine is running out. Now again, in the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential, not so that the, the guests could drink to excess, but because it symbolized joy and celebration. And yet, what Mary is concerned about here is she, she doesn't want the wedding to end in embarrassment. That's what she's focused on. Jesus, on the other hand, as he enters in on the scene, Jesus is focused on on how whenever the prophets prophesied about the messianic age coming, they would always talk about the wine flowing freely. Okay, that's where his mind is. And so their, their priorities kind of clash here in this conversation. In verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. Now, for a Jew who's reading that, they would translate that just automatically, they have no joy, that the joy has run out, the celebration is over. In fact, during this time period, there was a a famous rabbi saying that without wine, there is no joy. Okay, so the, the plot is thickening here, and let me just point out another significant aspect of Jesus's miracle is that through this encounter, we're going to see that Jesus offers complete satisfaction. Complete satisfaction. I keep emphasizing this, but it's important to know, wine was such a big deal at Eastern Jewish weddings that if you ran out of wine, you could actually get sued for that. Like this was, this was a central piece of this wedding feast. So for the wine to run out here, this is a nightmare of a situation for Mary and, and whoever's putting on this wedding. This is the ultimate breakdown in hospitality. Uh, the, the family could be up for just shame and embarrassment for the uh, entirety of their existence, but it's also a way to symbolize what life is like apart from Christ. See, don't get so focused on, on the physical elements here of the water and the wine, although that's amazing in and of itself. But focus in on the symbolic significance of this spiritual reality that apart from Christ, each and every one of us will come to a moment in our lives in which the wine runs out, in which the joy is gone. Like no matter who you are, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what kind of wines you've had in your life, you will come to a point in your life where apart from Christ, the wine runs out. And it's not just when you hit rock bottom. You can have this verse 3 experience when your health is full, when you're financially stable, when you have friends and family all around you, and yet you're still thirsty. Your soul is still wanting something more. You want more joy and more satisfaction. Look, I think this is what makes Jesus' first miracle so significant. Because 
We all will have that verse 3 moment, but as Jesus enters in here, he's offering something more, something that will quench our thirsty souls. He offers himself. Look, notice what happens here in in verse 4. Mary identifies that the wine has run out, the joy has gone out. She comes to to Jesus in verse 4, or uh, Mary comes to Jesus, tells him that. Then Jesus says in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with? With me, my hour has not yet come. Now, on the front end, you can kind of interpret this as if Jesus is being harsh or disrespectful to his own mother. In fact, that's how many of the translations have it. I know for me, like I I would never talk to my mom this way. In fact, I I called my mom by her first name only once in my life, and that was all I needed to to learn that lesson. But I think that the NIV kind of gets this translation uh, best, that the NIV says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Okay, so in other words, what does this problem have to do with my mission of getting to the cross and dying for the sins of the world? So he's not being disrespectful. He's trying to lovingly and gently communicate to Mary, his mother, that the dynamic of their relationship has to change, and it's going to change In this moment, as Jesus launches his public ministry, he is calling Mary not to be his mother anymore, but to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus out of faith. That he wants her not to talk to him as his mother, but as a disciple who is making this request by faith. Like perhaps Mary on the front end of this scene just wants Jesus to fix this problem. I mean, this wine running out is a huge issue, huge source of embarrassment. She just wanted this problem to go away. Many believe at this time, Joseph, Mary's husband, had passed away. And so Jesus being the firstborn, Mary relied on him heavily through many issues uh, throughout the last several years, no doubt. And yet when Mary comes to Jesus and Jesus responds and and does what she asks. He does something far greater than what Mary could have ever realized or could have ever anticipated. That Jesus does what she asks, not because she is his mother, not because she raised him and changed his diapers and taught him how to walk, taught him how to talk, but Jesus does what she asks because he wants her to follow him and to believe by faith. He wants to reconfigure their relationship. Look, it's so easy to connect with Mary in this passage, isn't it? Like we, we have our own issues and our own problems that we bring before Jesus that we want him to fix. Like we have those, those moments in our lives where the wine runs out, where, where the joy seems to, to go out, where we've got these problems and, and, and we bring them before Jesus. Yet marital problems or challenges in parenting or things going on at work and so on and so forth. And we bring these things before Jesus just like Mary does. And we ask Jesus, please fix this. Please solve this problem. And yet oftentimes, more often than not, that's, that's the mother in us talking. That, that's, that's Mary talking and not faith. See, what Jesus wants to do in our lives is something far greater than fix the problems that we have. 
He wants to do something far greater than just take away the issues that are going on in our lives. What Jesus wants is he wants us to see him in all of his glory, to behold his beauty and his greatness, so that even when the wine runs out and there is no refill, we are still okay with that because we have Jesus. That Jesus is still enough for us. See, that's the challenge for us. Like we, yes, we can bring our burdens before the Lord We are told to cast our anxieties before him, bring all of our issues before him. But look, the challenge is, is do you want your issues fixed greater than wanting Jesus? Do you want him to change the water into wine more than the the presence and, and, and enjoying the beauty of Jesus in your life? It's okay to take these things before him, but let's not treat him like a cosmic genie. Uh, He he doesn't exist for us to to fix our problems and to make our lives more comfortable and happy. What what he's after is our holiness and our growth and and our delight in him growing more and more. Look, one way that you can tell if this is happening in your life, just look at your prayer life. If you were to look at just the things that you're asking the Lord to do, sometimes we can We can overemphasize our our list, our things that we want him to fix, and we can de-emphasize our our growing delight in him, our growth in him, and our intimacy with Jesus. Look, sometimes we we come before Jesus, we've got this issue with the wine running out, we've got this empty cup, whatever it is, and and sometimes he, he doesn't refill it. Sometimes he just doesn't fix whatever issue that, that we're bringing before him. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to release that grip that we have on whatever that is in our lives so we can let go and fully embrace him. Sometimes he's trying to expose that that issue might be an idol in our hearts that's getting in the way of beholding his glory. Now, not every time, because sometimes he does meet us there in that issue. Sometimes he does work out things, and he starts to fix the things that we're asking him to fix. If you notice, even in our story, he does change water into wine. Praise the Lord for that. He does meet us in our prayer requests. And so look, look what Jesus does here. As uh, Mary and Jesus have this interaction, Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus tells these servants, hey, take these six water, uh, stone water jars and fill them to the brim. Okay? And what Jesus does here is he changes the water into wine. This is over 150 gallons of wine that he changes. Okay? Now, all the Baptists in the room probably just got a little uncomfortable, right? But he does this amazing miracle. And yet again, there's so much more behind this miracle that I, that I want to point out. We've got two more that I want to highlight. Here's the next one that I want to just talk about with these water jars, is that Jesus brings a true cleansing. He brings true cleansing. I want to talk about these jars for a moment, because not only are the jars significant, but the number of jars are significant. That these stone water jars were sitting there, uh, and they weren't just sitting there collecting dust. They had a role, even here at this wedding feast, that these jars were to be filled with water as part of the ceremonial washing for the wedding guests. The guests were to kind of wash their hands and even wash the the utensils that they used uh, to eat. And this was part of the the Jewish uh, ritual and and the custom as part of the old covenant. That this was required because of God's demand uh, for purity. 
Uh, God's demand for purity was administered through the countless and the monotony of all these washings and ceremonial uh, uh, cleansings. And yet, this is, this is not about the dirt on the hands. This is not about the utensils being kind of unclean. This is about God's moral demand for purity from his people that even extended to this wedding feast. See, during this, this time period in the Jewish community, the belief was that proper observance of this ritual for cleaning the outside might actually clean the hearts and the things that are going on inside our hearts. The belief was, if we can just check the boxes and focus on what's happening on the outside of our lives, following these rituals and and trying to become pure by these sacrifices and these these ceremonial washings, that our our hearts might be clean so that we can actually approach the God who is holy. And so look, these jars are are representing that mentality of just being focused on the external cleaning and not on the true cleaning of the heart. And yet Jesus takes these instruments and he uses it for something completely different. Jesus is declaring that the old order of things under the old covenant, under the Jewish law and custom, that is going away. Behold, the new has come. Rather than these jars being used as instruments for man to kind of clean themselves up to to reach to God, what Jesus does with them is he actually uses them as a vehicle by which he can draw near to them at this wedding feast. That Jesus takes these instruments in a completely new way. As one commentator um, put it so well, he said, Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. Jesus is now bringing forward the new covenant that brought a total and complete cleansing of the heart. And he doesn't use the water for the different rituals, but he uses his own blood. That Jesus, in just a couple of years here, will get up on a cross and he'll die in the place of sinners. He'll spill his own blood so that we might be covered in the death and the sacrifice of Jesus that brings a cleansing that the Old Covenant could not compete with. See, the Old Covenant, you had to repeat these cleansings, complete, uh, just repeat these washings, and yet the New Covenant is ushering in a once and for all moment of being cleansed under the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus replaces the old mechanisms for something better, something that gets at our hearts, and he does it through this central reality of being in relationship with him. I was struck by this whole scene. You, know, you take these six stone jars that you know, they just did as kind of part of a ritual, you know, probably a very kind of cold way of becoming cleansed so you can approach a God who's up in heaven, who is distant. And Jesus takes that and uses it in a way where Jesus draws near to people, changes the water into wine for them to enjoy. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of what our relationship with Christ should be like today. That it shouldn't be cold and distant, but it should be close and near and intimate and filled with joy and this, this abundance of satisfaction that Jesus provides. I mean, he, he fills it to the brim. He doesn't just fill it halfway. He fills it to the brim, and that's what Jesus offers us 
in this relationship with him, something that each of us crave deep down is a type of satisfaction that is overflowing because Jesus is better. So Jesus performs this amazing miracle. The servants give the uh, 180 gallons of the best wine to the master. He saves the day. And yet, verse 11, John tells us something very significant of this miraculous sign. And, and we'll close with this last point. That this sign that Jesus uses was to be a catalyst for faith in him. That this sign was a demonstration of, of Jesus' true character and power. And John says that this was the first of the signs. Remember, there's going to be seven of them throughout the Gospel of John that we'll walk through. And this word signs is very important. Uh, signs is meant to, to point to something. It's meant to signify something. And oftentimes, signs and wonder were used together. They were always linked. So whenever there's a sign that Jesus is performing, it's supposed to cultivate a wonder and an astonishment and an awe within our hearts about the glory of Jesus that's being put on display. And if you see what happens here, you've got this amazing, miraculous sign you have, according to verse 11, the manifestation of God's glory. And as a result of the disciples seeing not just the sign, but seeing the glory, they then believe. They put their faith in him. So you want to talk about what, what is this sign pointing to? What's the wonder in this passage? The wonder is that the disciples actually believe in Jesus. The wonder is not just the, the water being turned into wine, although that is miraculous. But the thing that is most significant is that people who could not see the glory of Jesus, now their eyes are open and they were given the gift of faith in order to believe. That is the true miracle here. That's, that's the astonishing reality that these disciples who were just kind of walking around, not really fully understanding Jesus, now see him in his glory and they believe. Look, if you have a story of being saved by Jesus that was a miracle by God in your life. That some of us, you know, and I've done some of your membership interviews as I'm sitting down talking and hearing about your testimony, hearing about your conversion. Sometimes the individual will start off and say, you know, I don't, I don't really have a very interesting testimony. You know, my testimony is kind of, uh, it's brief and I didn't really do a whole lot of stuff. And I like, to, I like just to stop them right there and point out the fact of how much of a miracle it is when God opens blind eyes, when God takes dead souls and makes them alive in Christ. I don't care if you were born literally in the church and you've grown up there and you haven't done anything wrong in your life. The fact that you were moved from the, the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, that was God working supernaturally in your heart, opening your eyes to seeing Jesus, not just seeing Jesus, but really seeing Jesus. And what I mean by that is, if you look at this passage, verse 11 just says the disciples believed. But, but wait a second, We're, didn't the servants see the miracle too? The, the servants saw the sign, the servants saw this amazing miracle, but they didn't really see. They did not really behold the glory of Jesus and see him for all that he's worth. And look, that's, that's the tension that we face. That's the challenge in the Christian life is, is to see Jesus, but to really behold Jesus and his glory. That's where transformation takes place. Look, I don't want to settle for being a servant. 
I don't, want to, I don't want to settle for just being aware of the workings of Jesus. I want to be a disciple of Jesus who sees and beholds and believes in him and is transformed because God has done a work in me. But that's what God is after. He desires the, the stone jars of our lives to be filled with the enjoyment of God's glory, to look at Jesus, to drink deeply of his glory. And yet, challenge is that we can just settle for a, a watered-down, Christless version of Christianity. Maybe I could even put it this way, a type of grape juice Christianity, if you will, where on the external, grape juice and wine look very similar, but they taste completely different, as I've been told. One is much fuller and richer and has substance. And look, some of us are settling for this grape juice type of relationship with Jesus where, where we do kind of the, the, the Christian rituals, and yet we're missing Christ. Like Jesus is the substance. We read the Bible, we pray, we come to church, we're in small group because we want more of Jesus in our lives, not just checking boxes, not just focus on the external and being, and being on the outside clean, but we want Jesus to invade every area in our hearts so that we can see, behold, believe, and be changed. And that is the, the miraculous moment in this miracle. You know, I was also struck at looking at this passage. Um, there, there's another marriage banquet that the scriptures talk about. I don't know if you, if, if you know Revelation, which probably uh, not a whole lot of us are studying on a daily basis, but there's another marriage banquet uh, that's referenced in Revelation chapter 19. And I got to believe that the author of John, who's the same author of Revelation, had this picture in mind as he's writing this. Look at this scene between Jesus, the groom, and the church being the bride. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is an unbelievable scene that John is, is writing that will take place in heaven. And I got to wonder if our passage is a, is a foretaste of that future heavenly marriage supper where Jesus is the true groom and his believers are the bride. And we're just gathered together in this amazing wedding feast where the wine will not run out, where the, the central source of our joy and satisfaction is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away our sins. And, and there's been so much that has been written about what that will be like and what that will look like. But you have to wonder if, if different saints will just start to stand up and talk about the ways in which Jesus saved them. Like you got to wonder if, if certain people will just start standing up, man, I was far from the Lord and yet he opened my eyes, performed this miracle in my heart, transformed me, and gave me faith to believe. And you think about another person standing, like Abraham starts off, and he says, man, I was worshiping other idols, and yet God invaded my life. He told me to follow him, and he didn't tell me where he was going to take me, but I followed him by faith. And then he gives me all of these promises, just 
crazy promises of having all of these descendants of the Messiah coming through my line, of being a, a, a person of many nations, and all the promises were true. He kept every single one of them. And you wonder if Abraham sits down, Moses stands up, starts talking about how God saved him. He sits down, Joseph stands up, Ruth stands up, and you wonder, you get to a, the apostle Paul. Can you imagine if he stood up, and he, you know, he's fighting back tears, and he's like, man, there's some of you in here that I, that I literally killed as I, was, as I was trying to observe the Old Testament. I was murdering Christians, and yet in that moment, God knocked me off the horse and, and gave me faith to believe. And he's holding back tears, just talking about the beautiful nature of who Jesus is and how he saved him. And then he sits down, all these saints, just talking about the beauty of the groom. And I love that picture of, of what that wedding feast will be like, where, where we're just going to enjoy Christ, who ushered in this new age of blessing with him. Well, my question for you today is, will you be there? Have you placed your faith in Jesus to be able to, to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Jesus has paid for my sins. Have you made that profession? Have you transferred your faith over to trusting in him? And it's our desire today that you would, that you would make that decision if you haven't already, that you would believe in Christ as your, as your perfect groom who will love you well, who has died in order to purchase your freedom. And for others of us who, who have trusted in Jesus, look what a great day that will be to be able to enjoy Jesus together and forever. And I just, I just wonder if, if some of us think about that scene and, and maybe a little bit of us says something like, man, is that going to be boring? Is that, is that all that heaven's going to be like, is just worshiping Jesus? That, I wonder if, if some of us might say that because right now you're, you're distant from Jesus. Maybe you're, you're caught up in checking the boxes and yet your love for Jesus is low. Look, if that's you today, I just want to exhort you and encourage you that what Jesus did at this wedding is, is what he offers for us, that he wants to draw near to you, that he offers you just overflowing joy and satisfaction. I just want to encourage you to pursue Jesus, to not get caught up in the religion of Christianity necessarily, but to pursue Jesus in the scriptures and in prayer and within community, that Jesus is there. Even though the wine might have run out, he's there with, with offering an invitation for you to come as you are, and he will fill you up. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, this miracle God, we thank you for who Jesus is and who Jesus continues to be uh, for us as we pursue him. God, we confess to you that it, it is so tempting to just check boxes spiritually. God, it's so tempting to, to just go through the motions. We're on the external. We, we look close to you, and yet internally our hearts are far from you. God, that's the challenge that we face, and we, God, we need you to invade the deep places of our hearts to show us areas in which we need to repent of and come close to you. And God, I pray that you would renew our joy and our satisfaction in you. God, remind us that tasting you is the best that we can do, that there's no one better than you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.